Welcome everyone to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. Shortly, I'll be joined by outgoing NCAA President Mark Emmert. We're going to have a lengthy conversation about his tenure, where the organization is today, and where it's going under Governor Baker. Mark, it is great to see you. Um, happy holidays. Um, so this is a momentous time, and you have overseen quite a shift in the NCAA during your tenure. Uh, so there's a couple of issues we just want to sort of peel back a little and then look forward. Um, first, I just want sort of an overall comment from you about how you have seen this organization, this membership that, as you and I have talked many times, people fully don't grasp how many different schools, the diversity of schools, Division One, Two, Three, and so on, are really involved as part of this membership. So how have you seen it change during your tenure? Oh, gosh. First of all, great to be with you again, Andy, as always. Um, it, it's, it's quite remarkable when you look at the dozen years that I've been involved. And of course, the transformations were beginning before I showed up. But the rate at which change has accelerated in an organization, a decision-making structure that's not accustomed to making fast decisions, but it's, it's learned to, and it's, it's learned to adjust much more rapidly to changing social dynamics and economic and political dynamics. The, the biggest shifts, in my opinion, are that uh, college sports was for literally a century pretty insular in that it, it was a self-contained enterprise. People loved it. They loved our sports. They were engaged with it. But you didn't have the, the legal, the political, and the social impacts from you know, coming at the enterprise from outside. So it, it was very, very poorly structured to react quickly to those things. And, and now it's a much, a much better uh, enterprise in terms of trying to you know, see where it needs to go and, and doing that in a, this democratic process. That, that's the part people don't understand very uh, much. And, and it's, it's still um, kludgy as all representative processes are, but way, way, way better than where it was a dozen years ago. On which issues do you think you evolved the most? Well, I think what we've seen, and I know for me personally, that the purpose of the enterprise, first and foremost, is to serve the athletes. And, and we've changed, and I've changed my views of what does that really mean? So we've got to worry more about healthcare than we ever have and focus our our attention on those things because we, we now know more than we knew before about uh, a, a number of areas in, in healthcare or in uh, the way we support our athletes. And of course, the whole NIL movement 12 years ago was uh, people couldn't imagine that conversation. And now we're trying to figure out how to make it work effectively. And uh, in, in the areas of what we can and should be doing for athletes today, given the economic changes, given all of the dynamics, uh, that's where we've seen the, the biggest changes. And again, including with my own thinking. You know, as a former president, and you know how presidents think, um, how hard was it for the presidents, do you think, uh, and yourself as a former president, to really wrap their arms around that the model had shifted to be a little bit more student-athlete friendly from the bottom up versus the top down? University presidents that I'm close to that I know they're thinking really well, and that's lots and lots of university presidents. Uh, and I know it was always true for me. I, I looked at what we provided our athletes on my campuses, 
and and I was always uh, a bit envious about the, what they had that I couldn't provide the rest of the student body in terms of academic support and and a whole structure that was around them to be nurturing and and give them a, a lot of a lot of the kinds of things that you would hope that the whole campus could enjoy. And so I think there there was a natural reluctance to say, wow, you know, they're they're in a, a, a place right now where they get all these the support and benefits, and we need to do more. And and so I think it was an inherent resistance, Andy, that that now people look at and go, no, 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 let's think about this in a different way and say, what can we do to support them? They're engaged in these amazing activities that are so valuable to not just themselves but the whole campus community and beyond. And and it's it's been a really significant shift from uh, where we were a dozen years ago to now thinking about proactively what what more can we do where can we go and I'm also really proud of the shift because I was advocating this 12 years ago the shift in giving the students themselves more voice in those decisions and and even the votes on the committees so seeing that integration of their voice and votes in the process has been really rewarding as well. So it's a very different mindset today than it was a dozen years ago. Yeah, that last point you just raised, you know, for whatever reason it took, and we know it takes glacial at times, um, for the student athletes to have a voice. We know, you know, they're in, they're out, they're at different schools, they're only a set time period, they're on campuses versus full-time, you know, uh, faculty, administrators, and so on. Um, that was also a critical shift in the recent past to give them that voice. Why would you think early on there was some resistance to hear from the student athletes? I'll be honest and say I'm not sure. For, for me as a university president, a former president, I always had students on my board, on my board of regents, and they always voted on who was going to be president. They always voted on my retention or my pay, and I was very accustomed to having uh, graduate and undergraduate students sitting there and, and uh, dealing with them. So I, I thought that would be pretty, a pretty easy sell, but there was a lot of hesitation. Part of what it is, is I, I think, Eddie, is just what you described. And that's that uh, the students, student athletes in particular, uh, change a lot. So that's, it's hard to get continuity and it's hard to get them engaged. They're incredibly busy with school and, and athletics and life. But as we've seen, they're really good at it when we when we give them an opportunity. And uh, I'm incredibly proud of the students that have shown up on all of our boards. They're they're more than responsible. They're often leaders in that environment. So it's it's one of those things that the proof's in the pudding. And now when you see it in action, lo and behold, it works. It works remarkably well. And and I'm proud that we've been able to make that shift. Uh, the, the the athletes are just spectacular. Yeah, and and, and also. Um you know, to that point, the, the diversity of universities and colleges across division ones, two and three, uh, we, you and I have talked about this. I wanna scream it from the rooftops about what your job is and how much control you have. Um, the frustration level, how hard was it for you to convey that you are not and never were or will be Roger Goodell, Adam Silver, Gary Beck, you know, I mean, you're just not going to be those people. That's not the way the NCAA is run, like the NHL, the NBA, Rob Manford, MLB. Um, how hard was that for you to convey that? Well, very hard. And, and I think it, 
it hasn't penetrated as deeply as it as it um, should today. Uh, I, I consider that uh, one of the you know incomplete tasks that I didn't get done. I wish I could have done more on that that front. Uh, it, it's not just that the NCA isn't run like a, a professional sports league. It's that it can't be run like a professional sports league. Roger Goodell does a, does a great job. Adam does a spectacular job. They have 30 or 32 teams. There are 19,000 NCAA teams. Uh, they're completely different enterprises. They're run on campuses. The presidents are the people with the ultimate authority on the campus, in the conference, and in the national association. And you can't replace that with one person and say, there's the czar, go do it. And, and so I, I always wind up paraphrasing Churchill. You know, it's the it's the worst system possible, except for all the others. And and it's it's the way that you have to run a collaborative national college sports enterprise. And it's it's just going to be a mission that you know my my replacement um, Governor Baker is going to take on, and I know he'll do a good job of it. It's the kind of thing governors are good at, and. Uh, but it'll have to be conveyed again and again and again and again because people don't understand. Here's a problem. Fix it. It's just, you know, it's not that uh, easier. We all would have fixed all these problems uh, that we have uh, earlier. Conference commissioners obviously have more authority over their specific group. To your point, like a, a finite number, you know, a manageable number, I should say, of schools um, you know, college football, for example, again, another entity that people don't fully grasp is not, I, say, I should say, uh, FBS college football is not under the traditional NCA control, whereas it is with those conference commissioners. Um, that ship has sailed. Uh, that's another one. Like, how did you navigate grasping that you're dealing with all these, you know, SEC and you name it, the conferences for everything else, but not with college football outside of the rules and enforcement? Yeah, so the, the, the role of the conferences is fundamentally different, right? They, they basically pull together their sports schedules. They, they run some very modest rulemaking structure at the conference level. I spent a lot of my time in conferences, hired, hired commissioners when I was a president, all of that. Uh, they don't do much of anything in the regulatory environment. They don't do much of anything in the rulemaking environment. Uh, and their economics are much simpler because they've got 10, 12, maybe 14 members. And so they've got to work with a very small set of people. That's not to say the job's easy. It's not. It's a very hard, complicated job. But it's enormously simpler than what goes on in the entire, the entire association with all of the constituencies that are there. Uh, so they do have more levers to pull because their portfolio, if you will, is is smaller uh, and and more streamlined, and that you know that's uh, just a, a, an enormous difference. College football and and college basketball are the two marquee sports in America. The association, the national association, the NCAA, oversees the conduct of both of them, sets the rules for both of them creates the environment within which they all occur, that structure was never part of the NCA. And of course the CFP isn't part of the, 
of the NCAA. And, and people don't understand that because it's confusing. It's silly in a lot of ways. It's just the way it's evolved. And I, I love when we have a great college football playoff championship game and I'll have people send me congratulatory notes about how well, you know, great job, Mark, for pulling off that CFP championship. And of course, I was just a fan like everybody else. But the national office and the NCAA as an enterprise, we're just spectators with it. And you got a division now of a massive amount of money that doesn't go into or get distributed through all the membership like basketball does. Uh, so it'll, it, it's changing some of the dynamics yet again. And that, that drift apart of those two components, I think, will continue. But I'm confident that college football will stay under the NCAA rubric because the rest of it works surprisingly well even if it's complicated and hard and uh it's got all of the bumps in it but it it, it works and it works most importantly well for the athletes yeah as we've documented on this show someone has to make the rules someone has to do the concussion study uh you know health and safety someone has to and i don't see them wanting to do it on their own a couple last couple topics here first of all enforcement how have you seen enforcement change during your tenure and i know it got interrupted with the pandemic and you know staff changes and not being able to go out and all those kinds of things and the the uh, uh the um the third party um you know after the rice commission uh, how has enforcement changed under your tenure i think first of all uh there, there has to be a continuing re uh, recognition by everyone, the schools certainly understand this, that some entity, somebody has got to have authority over keeping people on track with the rules. If you're going to have rules, if you're going to have policies, somebody has to regulate those. And, and somebody, when there's misconduct, has to enforce those rules one way or another. Everybody gets that. And as you just said, there's no other entity right out there now that that is doing that you can't do it at the conference level because they don't have authority over the other conferences you can only do some of it at the school level because they just oversee their school so you got to have the ncaa in that in that mix what's changed i think is it is first of all we've made a very conscientious shift to have the enforcement and regulatory role be as collaborative as possible. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's the only successful thing that we know because you gotta be able to sit out and John Duncan and his team, Sam Wilcox, who oversees all the regulatory affairs, they are masterful at this. You gotta sit out with the school, you gotta sit out with the conference and say, okay, let's agree to get to the facts here as best we can. And they work hard with the school to try and get at facts. What's happened though is as the stakes of success have gone up, especially financial success for schools and teams and coaches, there's been a tendency to, to have that become more adversarial and less collegial. So uh, today, when there's a, a committee on infractions hearing, there will be an army of lawyers that show up from schools and coaches and, and athletes sometimes. And and it feels and looks a lot more adversarial than, than it should be. Uh, and, and that's been difficult to manage. There's just no doubt about it. On the other hand, John Duncan and his people have been doing a much better job doing informal settlements, if you will, uh, be long before they get to the, 
the, the trial end of this, you know, the committee on infractions, and they're doing a lot more um, uh, settlements in advance and saying, okay, let's agree on what the facts are. Now let's agree on what, a, what an appropriate solution is. Let's solve it and move on. And steering most of that away from impacting the athletes as much as possible. 2020, uh, really 2020 and 2021, clearly the most difficult uh, time for all of us. I mean, regardless of what your profession is, but I, yeah. I want to go to two instances here. Number one, what was that like when that decision had to be made? If I'm not mistaken, on March 12th, March 12th, 2020, uh, I was in the, I was in Indy at the big 10 tournament when it all got shut down, when everything had to be shut down. And then subsequently the decision to shut down the rest of the spring um, if you can take me through that process of how hard it was to make such a momentous decision that you knew was going to have, um, you know, collateral damage for everyone. Uh, Brian Hainline, who you of course know well, chief medical officer of the NCA had been really attentive to COVID from the very beginning, way ahead of everybody else in the sports world in January was, was saying, you know, this thing over in China, this is looking like the real deal here. And we even did some communication out to the membership in uh, somewhere in January, I think it was mid-January perhaps, uh, to, to get some early tracking on it. Uh, we put together a a team under Brian of medical experts from around the country. So we had been gathering data, watching this horrible pandemic start to unfold. Nobody knowing what it really meant. Didn't remember. We didn't know what to do about it. Remember, we all were washing our hands like twelve times a day, and um, didn't didn't know what this was all going to lead to. But by the time we get to March twelfth, uh, we briefed up my board really well. We had the, the current, the former and now current Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, on, on the board at that time, who was fabulous. The decision to, to shut down the tournaments and to end the season for the winter was a really uh, easy decision to make, but it was gut-wrenchingly uh, hard to embrace the reality of what that was going to mean. Uh, it, it was it was evident that we needed to do it, and the board was really really supportive, and we we knew how to manage it. Could it have been communicated out more smoothly? Could we have all done some things differently at that time? Of course, we all would love to go back and know know then what we know now. But we got we got through the that part of it to just shut down the tournament on the eve of the men's and women's tournaments and, and then to make the decision, then lean back and say, oh my gosh, what have we just had to do? Was so hard. Uh, I, the next day, I, I called a number of coaches, men's and women's basketball coaches, teams that were on, their, on a march to do something maybe really special. Dayton, remember Dayton was, yep. I mean, potentially a legitimate number yep. one for Dayton. And I, I, I had to call them and just sit and talk. And, you know, just, it was, um, 
it was so hard to have that ripped away from these these athletes at at that moment. It was it, it was miserable. But then you know that the same decision needed to be made for spring, and that was a little that, that was harder to make because we didn't know what spring was really going to look like. If you'd asked me probably on March 12th, with no medical experience, were we going to be playing football in the fall? I would have said, oh, surely we're going to be fine by the fall, right? I mean, how, how wrong was I? Uh, I think we all would have been. But uh, we were looking at the data. We were looking at what we really understood and didn't understand about the disease and what the potentialities were and debated it with the board and reached the conclusion that we got to shut it all down. We got to stop through the spring. This is now a public health emergency. Is it way past being a sports issue? Now we got to deal with it. And we did, and it was awful. <laughs> but we also did everything right in, in the recovery stage of it, in figuring out how to continue c- conducting games. I've never been more proud of the campuses who figured out how to manage their way through this. Uh, and they were great at the, the infection rates on campuses were so much lower than the rest of the country. And, uh, you know, I, t- I, talk, I remember talking to Stanford and, you know, tracking their women's basketball team who was locked up in hotels all over the country. It was, it, it was heroic what they did, what Tara and, the, and those women did to pull together a season. And so it was, you know, it was the worst of times, the best of times. It was pretty, it was pretty fantastic too to see people doing what they needed to do. So it was one of the most important chapters of, of um, the history of college sports and, and of our society. Obviously, it was a Herculean effort to pull off the bubbled tournaments in Indy and San Antonio. Um, but on the women's side, uh, you know, uh, the disparity was evident. It came out. And there's been significant changes since then. If you can just also just walk me through just your reaction then and what you've seen since then in terms of um, the improvements for the women's game. Yeah, I think that's important to separate those two things because here was this event being conducted to to be fair to everybody that was pulling this off. And, you know, at the last minute, we all decided if we're going to have a tournament, we got to do it in a bubble. San Antonio doesn't have the facilities that you got in Indianapolis. Indianapolis is our hometown. We know how to do everything there. San Antonio is a different, more complex process. So we, we had to scramble to make it all work. And it was, in fact, easier in Indy for a whole bunch of reasons than San Antonio. That being said, there were a lot of balls that got dropped. We, we didn't execute on important things anywhere near as well as we could have and should have. And we all know that. And it was uh, mortifying in many respects to have that play out the way it did. The good news is that it wasn't just a one-time failure that the world could see. It was generational in its making in a lot of respects that exposed the way long-term decision-making had been going on about the movement of and improvement of all of our championships over time and making sure we had gender equity right. The, the biggest shift wasn't that the women's game didn't evolve fast. It did. It's that the men's game had been elevated at such a level and the women's game hadn't moved, been moved up alongside it. 
so then we go into this really hard, but but proper uh, assessment of what's really going on. We go on and I, I said, here's what we're going to do. And we did it. And I was really proud of that. It was painful. It was expensive. It was all of those things, but it was the right thing to do. Get an outside firm, completely independent, in a let them hire who they want to hire, do an honest to God, independent assessment. And they came up with a very hard hitting, as you well know, because you talked a lot about it, hard hitting assessment, outlined a whole series of proposals and suggestions of how to make it better. And then we went through collectively with membership committees, things we could do internally that I had authority over, changing investment patterns with the board support. And, and it's been a remarkable shift that I'm very, very, very proud of. It is in many respects, kind of like the COVID incident, this awful, painful thing. But then you, you say, okay, how do we deal with this? How do we change this to be better for it? And we've done that. And the work's not done. Don't get me wrong. There's still a lot to be done, especially at the campus and conference level. But when it comes to our championships, you can go to one of our women's championships now and you feel really, really proud of what's going on there. Uh, and, and I sure am. And everybody that's been involved in it looks at it and says, wow, this is a dramatically better and improved experience for the athletes because that's what counts um, than what we had uh, in San Antonio and all the years before that, the decades before that. What are you going to miss most about this job? I've been asked that a lot and it sounds like a cliche, but it's really true. It's all of the people. It's, it's all of the athletes that I get, get to interact with. It, if at the end of all of this, of, of a process, if we're not making the lives of our athletes better, if they're not successful as students, if they're not successful as athletes, if they're not healthy mentally and physically, then we're missing the boat. We're doing all of those things really, really well. And I won't get to see that up close and personal as much. You know, I, I, I love seeing that. I love seeing athletic administrators and coaches and faculty athletic reps all working so hard toward that end. And the part that I will miss the least and the part that I really dislike about the job is when people say, not just to me, this isn't just about Mark Emmert, it's about all those people working so hard to provide this uniquely American, amazing experience for a half a million athletes. And people will say, you're just trying to take advantage of the kids. You just care about making money off their backs. And, you know, you know the, the whole storyline when it's just the opposite and people just busting their backs to to try and make this work well and and so it's it's the two sides of that i love seeing it i love interacting with the athletes i love interacting with the, the, the people that make it work and i hate it when people get the exact wrong impression of what that's all about um those those are the the yin and the yang of the job what's next for you I'm not exactly sure. I know what's not next. There's some things that I don't want to do anymore. Um, but uh, I, I've got some writing to do. I got a book or two or three that I want to write. Some I've been putting off for, for a long time and you know, some that I'll, I'll do. Uh, I've been approached about a number of things that I'll sort through in the coming months. I've got really till June 30th till my obligations with the association are done done. 
Uh, first and foremost, want to make sure that, that Governor Baker has a good transition, that he's as, as set as anybody can be to come in and, and take the reins. Uh, uh, that's important, obviously. I'm really pleased with the board's decision. I don't, I don't know the governor well. I've chatted with him a bit on a Zoom call. Really looking forward to spending some time with him. But knowing his background, seeing his success level in an in a equally tough, in many would say impossible job, uh, he's just been wildly successful and popular, clearly loves college sports and higher education. So I think it was a great choice and, and I'm enthusiastic about, about him stepping in here. So that's the immediate, you know, immediate situation. What can Mark Emmer do to help make that successful? And that, you know, that will be whatever he wants. He can tell me to go away, fine, I'll go away. I can, I'll do whatever he wants and needs. Uh, and, and then we'll go from there and see what happens. I, uh, rocking chairs are not in my future. <laughs> All right, last thing for you, as it relates to Governor Baker, what will be his toughest challenge, do you think, here in the short term, here in this first year or two of his tenure, which will begin in March? Well, we've been talking about it. it it's, it's building <clears throat> agreement and consensus among 1,100 schools with hugely di diverse interests and, and economics and philosophies, and then helping drive them forward to make critical decisions with Congress, which has never happened before in, in college sports history. We have to get Congress to help with a number of key issues because they, in this current legal environment, they can't be done by the association alone. Um, and, and then to get the membership, to the schools to continue to understand that change is essential here. It's gonna be hard, but it's gonna be essential. It can be fun and, and exciting, but it's not gonna be easy. And that's why I think that the board has made a really wise choice because that's in a nutshell what governors do for a living. And for a very popular Republican to do that in a very Democrat state like Massachusetts, Massachusetts is speaks volumes. And um, that's what he's gotta do is, is pick up where we are right now and get people to all row in the same direction uh, and convince Congress that we're really serious about it. Well, Mark, I uh, appreciate your service, obviously to the organization, to all of us and your support. Um, be well, I know we will talk soon and, and thanks for your time. Thank you again to Mark Emmert for spending some time with us here on our social series. And as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where all our social series are archived. Thanks for watching, everyone.